There's a man named Joseph Grinney, and he is a social scientist, and he's, I know him because he's a popular speaker at leadership conferences, so he comes up quite a bit on different things that I follow, and he loves to study human behavior, and then he likes to take the study of that human behavior and then apply it to leadership, how knowing how humans interact or react is helpful when you're trying to lead other human beings. So he makes those connections for leaders. And one of his most popular books is titled Crucial Conversations. Crucial Conversations. He takes a look at how human beings interact in a crucial conversation. The subtitle, Tools for Talking When the Stakes Are High. Isn't that a great title? You've been in a crucial conversation, have you not? You know that you, you can feel it. The stakes are high in this conversation. And so Grinny asked this question. In our lives, are there a few moments of what he, what he calls disproportionate influence? The, these crucial conversations, they have more impact on the rest of your life than so many other conversations. Moments in our lives that matter more than others. A few moments that if we showed up, if we responded in a certain way, if we behaved in a certain manner at that crucial point, would there be a dramatic difference in the outcome? Maybe an outcome that would reshape our whole lives. And Grinny's answer to his own question, of course, is yes. And he calls these crucial conversations. And this morning, we're listening into a crucial conversation. It's a conversation between Jesus and Peter. It's a conversation between Jesus and his disciples. It's a, it's a conversation, it's a crucial conversation between Jesus and the crowd. And it's a crucial conversation between Jesus and you this morning. Perhaps you didn't realize it, that when you were driving here to Christ's community, you were coming into a crucial conversation. You are entering into a crucial conversation in the next 30 minutes that should have a disproportional influence on the rest of your life. And the stakes couldn't be higher. So whether you're middle-aged or middle school, if you came in here and say, you know, I'm tired. I, you know, this is one of those days. I, my wife or kids or something, I wouldn't have come. If you're here saying, well, I'm, you know, I got to make a list. I got so many things. If if any of those kinds of things are blocking you from listening, I'm I'm asking you to to have the discipline to stop. To do what we talked about in that opening prayer to really live in this moment on the dash of your life and listen into this crucial conversation that Jesus is having in Mark 8, but also he's having it with you with me. Let's pray before we get started. Lord, every heart here has an enemy to hearing, really hearing. And so we need your help just to open up a door for us to hear your voice this morning. Would you do that for us, we pray. Amen. Verse 27, we read Jesus has taken his disciples on a field trip. little field trip to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi doesn't mean that much to us, but imagine if I said I went to Las Vegas. Immediately, certain things would come to your mind. 
And Caesarea Philippi was a, a city full of idols. It's like a stage full of idols. And interestingly enough, Jesus steps on this stage. And while he's on this stage full of idols, he asks this critical question, who do you say that I am? On the stage of all these pseudo-saviors that the world is offering, am I any different? Am I just one among many, or am I, am I somehow different? And Peter answers correctly, no, you're different. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. Then Jesus leans in and begins a crucial conversation. He informs the disciples, verse 31, the Son of Man must do four different things. You see him there in the text. Must suffer many things, must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, must be killed, must rise again from the dead after three days. Jesus wanted to know, help his disciples know, hey guys, this is where I'm going. If you're following me, I'm telling you plainly, as you would want to happen in any crucial conversation. In any crucial conversation, you you really try to boil it down to the most clear, concise way you can say it. Because you don't want any sort of political speech. You don't want any kind of fuzziness. You just want to say, guys, this is a crucial conversation. You've answered correctly. You've said the right things. But now I need to know you can walk in the right way. And I'm telling you, this is the way. These four things must happen. These four things, they're the gospel. And Peter, unfortunately, reacts very negatively to Jesus' four-point plan. And whether it's to save face or not embarrass Jesus, whatever Peter's reason is, he takes Jesus aside and he rebukes Jesus. It doesn't say Peter was frightened and took Jesus aside and said, well, maybe we should hide. I mean, we don't want this to happen. It doesn't say that he was compassionate and took Jesus aside and said, I'm so sorry. This is the way it has to go. No, it's just the opposite. Peter took Jesus aside and was disapproving. I don't approve of your words. Your words are wrong. Jesus, you're going the wrong way. Oh, man. Man. Verse 33, a critical moment. Jesus turns and sees the rest of his disciples. And he knows. Here he is with Peter. Peter the leader. Peter, the leader of the disciples when Jesus dies, this is the guy these other 11 guys are going to follow. So he knows it's a crucial moment. It's a crucial conversation. This is a moment that's going to have disproportionate influence on Peter's life. Now, I'm sure Jesus didn't have the time to respond to every dumb thing the disciples ever said. I mean, that that would just be an endless amount of time that would take. But here, this disciple, this dressing down, this can't go unchecked. So Jesus rebukes, same word, rebukes Peter. And in the strongest language, this has to cut Peter the heart. Get behind me, Satan. Peter, you're setting your mind on not the things of God, but the things of man. Now, try to imagine receiving this as Peter. Jesus is effectively telling Peter, Peter, 
Satan doesn't want this plan that I've outlined. Satan's been standing in the way of this plan since Genesis. Peter, you blocking me from the cross is blocking me, is blocking your own salvation and the salvation of the whole world. Peter, somehow Satan has infiltrated your thinking. I don't even think you realize it. And you've become Satan's mouthpiece, so get behind me now. It's, it's powerful. It's intense. It's like any crucial conversation. Jesus is measuring his words. Each one matters. Now, why, why the intensity? What, what's at stake here? That Jesus has to lean in and really make sure Peter and the disciples and us understand what he's saying. And I would say what's at stake is the word and the sovereignty of God. These are big things for Jesus. The word and sovereignty of God. That's what's being challenged. That's what's being opposed by Peter. And and Jesus has to jump in and really offer some strong correction to Peter. What Peter doesn't understand is that he's not just opposing Jesus' words and Jesus' way at this moment. Listen, he's not just opposing Jesus' words and Jesus' way at this moment. He's opposing God's word and God's way from before the beginning of time. You see what, G- what Peter is mistakenly standing in front of. A plan had been set in motion before time began, and Peter has the audacity to step in front of that that God-ordained plan and say, that's not the right way. He's going to get run over by that train. And so Jesus has to step in very strongly. See, in Genesis chapter 3, we can go back and just name a few places. God is speaking to Satan, and he says, I will put enmity, hostility between you and the woman, and eventually there will be an offspring of the woman, who we know is Jesus, who will have the capacity to crush your head. He's going to eliminate you, Satan. In the process, you're going to bruise his heel. There's going to be some pain in the crushing that's going to be endured by this person. That's God's plan from the very beginning. Satan has known this from Genesis 3. Satan's been opposing it and is opposing it right now through Peter's words. Isaiah 53, he is going to be despised and rejected by men and afflicted by God. He will be like a lamb led to the slaughter and the Lord will lay on him the iniquity of us all. These things must happen. Psalm 16 But you will not abandon my soul to death. You won't let your Holy One ultimately see corruption. See, the the rejection, the death, the resurrection of Christ, all of these things have this massive momentum that Peter, I don't think, realizes he's standing in front of. So the script for the suffering and resurrection of Jesus was written centuries earlier, and these Four statements, these gospel statements must happen. Jesus goes on to say in Mark chapter 10, these things must happen, and the Son of Man must give his life as a ransom, a payment, a purchase price. So the, 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 the suffering, death, and resurrection 
is God's plan to purchase souls for many. That's how you get saved. That's how everyone on this planet for all time gets saved. From the entry of Jesus Christ into the world, his rejection and suffering, his death and his resurrection, that's God's plan. There isn't another plan. There's not another way. This is the way. And Peter's trying to say, hey, there's another way. And see, when Peter says that, he doesn't realize he's echoing Satan's voice from the wilderness. Remember that? He's become the mouthpiece to say to Jesus, oh, Jesus, there's got to be another way. He doesn't realize that he's echoing Satan's word in the Garden of Eden to say, for Satan to say to Adam and Eve, you don't need to trust in God's word. You don't need to trust in God's way. There's another way. You should be free. You should decide for yourselves. And Jesus rebukes Peter with the harshest rebuke, just as Adam should have done in the garden all those years ago. What's absolutely critical for Peter to understand, what's absolutely critical for you and I to understand is that there is no other way. Every other way of salvation, other than the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, every other way is from man's mind or from Satan. Those are the same thing in this text. When Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, you've got in your mind the things of man. Those are the same thing. The things of man and Satan, those are the same things. So any other way, any other scheme that the world comes up with to say, oh, yeah, you can get saved this way, that's from Satan. And, and Jesus has to get that ice bucket and throw it on Peter's face to, to wake him up to say, Peter, you don't have any idea what you're talking about. You and I don't get to decide the way of salvation. You don't get to decide the way of your salvation. Only God gets to decide that. And for the moment, Peter can't stand that he doesn't get a say. I have to have a say in my salvation. I have to have a voice. I have to be heard. I have to have to join in and say, no, I like some of this Jesus, but I don't like this. And let's make the Peter way. The, the way this comes out today in our culture, would co- it comes out in a number of different ways. Here's a couple of different ways. I have to live out my own truth. Very common. I have to live out my own truth. I mean, there's a Truth that somehow inside of me, I got to find it in order to be true to myself. I got to live out my own truth. That's from Satan. Or I'm spiritual, but not religious. This is code for, I recognize myself as a spiritual being, but I'm not going to subscribe to any one voice, even Jesus's. I am a spiritual being, which is true, but, but I'm not religious. In other words, a four-point plan, well, I just can't fit into a four-point plan because why? I got to have, have my own say, so I'm spiritual, but I'm not narrow. 
like a four-point plan might be. In our culture, this sounds so enlightened. I mean, you've probably been captured by it yourself. Somebody says that and you go, wow, that's deep. And God is trying to take the ice bucket and say, whoosh, no, that's stupid. But you get sucked into it somehow. And the reason you get so sucked into it is because it feeds something in your own soul and ego to say, yes, I get to participate in this. And Jesus is saying to Peter, no, you don't. This is a plan that began before the foundation of the earth, Peter. Do you understand? It's a harsh response. But it's necessary. And that's the the first half of this crucial conversation. So we need to just stop and ask ourselves here. Do you trust in God's word? Do you trust in God's way? Or do you trust in your truth? Really, you need to ask yourself. Because Peter... He's, he looks like he's a disciple. He looks like he's the main guy following Jesus. And yet something gets exposed in Peter's heart here. And it might need to be exposed in your heart. See, the stakes couldn't be higher on your answer to that question. So let's, okay, let's say, let's pray that the Lord is speaking to your heart now. And you're going, okay. I don't, I could be Peter. I don't want to be Peter. I don't, I don't want to be that person who gets rebuked by Jesus. I don't want to be the center of all truth. I, I want to know how to get into the kingdom of heaven. I, I want to know how to follow after Jesus. How do I get eternal life? How do I get included in the ransom for many? I want to be part of the many. Maybe you're, you're leaning in that direction in your soul. And the answer to how do you get in is the second half of this crucial conversation. Let's look at it together. Jesus calls to the crowd. Now he's got the crowd and the disciples with him. And he's basically going to outline, here's how you get in. If anyone would come after me, okay, anyone, anyone, first very broad, anyone can do this. Let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever, see how broad that is? Whoever would save his life must lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. So how can I know my soul has been purchased by Jesus' ransom? How can, how can you know? How can you leave today knowing could go back to Mark chapter 15 and just quote Jesus. This is always a good plan, quoting Jesus to answer his own question. You could say, well, Jesus says in Mark 1.15, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Believe. That's, that's a key word in the Christian faith. You got to believe. You got to trust in Jesus. And if you said that, you would be right. You'd be right. That's what you have to do is believe. But the word believe in our culture has become almost weightless. Jesus knows it. Could be weightless for Peter. He can look ahead 2,000 years and say it might be weightless for us. 
How would you fill up that word belief? If somebody asked you, well, how do I get in? You say, you got to believe. Well, can you tell me what that means? How, how would you fill up? How would you fill out that word? What would you say? What would you say to give it weight? Fortunately, we don't have to depend on your, your answer or my answer. Praise the Lord. Because Jesus fills it up. He fills it out. He gives it weight right here. Here's the real weight. You have to lose yourself. You have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross. This is the weight. Now, I want to be careful here. So I want to be clear. This is a crucial conversation. When Jesus is giving us these instructions to take up our cross, to lose our life, he's not adding to belief. So what you've got to be clear in your own mind. He's not adding to belief. He's not saying, well, you've got to believe and then you've got to do certain things. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I'm revealing belief in these actions. I'm not adding to it. I'm defining belief by these actions. This is what belief actually means. This is what belief actually looks like. In other words, if you find yourself saying, I believe... But when you look at your life and say, well, I'm not taking up a cross. I'm not losing my life. Then maybe you don't really believe. Maybe when you say believe, it's weightless. You might think you're eternally secure. But you could be in terrible danger. Even by saying the right word. Peter said... You are the Christ. But he was in terrible danger. I wonder if anyone here would say, I believe he is the Christ, but you're in terrible danger. Because you haven't filled that up with what Jesus means. I'm sure I've used this illustration before. A man came to church one time here at Christ Community. And um, not long afterwards, he died. I don't think there was a one-to-one correspondence in case anybody is worried about that. He had no church home. Had some kind of profession of faith somewhere. And so the niece, his only relative, asked me to do the funeral. And But prior to the funeral, I got a chance to talk to him as he's in hospice. And he was coherent, and I would talk to him and just never seemed to be receptive to anything about Jesus. So I did the funeral best I could just to tell people what the gospel was. I wasn't sure that this guy was saved. In fact, I was leaning towards, I don't know that this guy is saved. But I, look, I don't know. Thankfully, I don't have to be the judge. But I, I just felt like this guy, he didn't have anything in his life. And here at the very end of his life, he seemed to be pushing Jesus away. And she called me about a month later and said, hey, I, I got peace in my soul. I was like, well, why? Why? And going through his stuff, I found a box that he had some old vacation Bible school stuff when he was like eight or nine. And in this little pamphlet, it had a, the sinner's prayer, and he had signed his name at the end. So I know he's safe. That, does that give you confidence? 
that somebody just wrote something and you, you sign your name? Is that, is, that, is that what Jesus is talking about? No, no, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about something that's weighted, something that's demonstrated, something that's visible, and you could see it. You've got to deny yourself. You've got to take up your cross. You've got to follow after me. And so this is a crucial conversation, and my question for all of us here is, when you say, I believe, does it have weight, or is it weightless? Jesus reveals what weighted belief looks like, and he, in this explanation, he, you, you can see it. Jesus is saying there, there's two selves. I don't know if that's a word, selves. There's two different selves. There's the self that loves this world. There's the self that desperately wants to save its life in this world. There's the self that gets its identity from the world. And Jesus knows, man, this is where he's a master at life. He's the ultimate social scientist. He knows that when you try to satisfy your hungers and longings from this world, when you try to attach yourself to finite things in this world, they don't end up saving your life. They end up costing your life. He already knows it. If you take an infinite hunger for the holy and try to, to attach yourself to something that's finite created and hope that that thing is going to fill your soul, you're going to be disappointed time and time again, and you're going to be soul crushing your own soul by doing this. Whenever we try to fill in an infinite hunger with a finite thing, Jesus is telling us we lose and Jesus is so wise. This is why I really love this passage. He's just not going to leave anything out of the crucial conversation. He's going to say, Peter, people of the first century, people of the 21st century, let me go ahead and tell you what are two pseudo saviors. Here are the two things most people, their soul is going to get attached to and think, if I get this thing, that's really going to be satisfying. And what are they? Possessions and praise. 37, 36, 37. Here's what he says. For what does it profit a, a man to gain the whole world? Here's what we're going to do. We have this infinite hole for the holy. But we say, oh, if I could gain the whole world... Or whoever is ashamed of me in this world, whoever hungers after the, the words and the acclamation of the world, the adulterous and sinful generation, possession and praise. It always feels like if I could just have a little more stuff, then I'd be fulfilled, does it not? But we should know the wisest, the richest person in the world, Ecclesiastes, the the preacher says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied. But foolishly, we think, I know you thought this. Oh, but Paul, if I won the $10 million lottery, I wouldn't be one of those people. You would. You would. Because it's a finite thing that you're trying to fill an infinite hunger for the holy no, no amount is enough 
because souls aren't purchased by money. Souls are purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. So no amount of money is enough. I wonder if you read just this week uh, a man from China, 24-year-old man, 24 on his birthday. Imagine this happening to you. His parents give them part of a pharmaceutical company that they have been running in stock. The total amount of the gift, $3.8 billion. Hey, that's a lot of cash for a 24-year-old. It's not enough to purchase one soul. In fact, Jesus says you could get the whole world, but when you come into heaven, it can't purchase even one soul. Praise. Jesus makes it clear there's always going to be two audiences in your life. There's going to be the adulterous and sinful generation. There's going to be the Son of Man and millions of holy angels. And the question for every one of us in this room, and maybe particularly a person speaking to a room, is which audience means the most to you? It's just a binary choice. You're going to love the praise and adulation of the world, and you're going to serve and worship that, or you're going to love the praise and adoration of God and his holy angels, and you're going to serve that. Whichever one, which one is it for you? Whichever one you choose, that's who you worship. Praise and possessions. These are the two imposters that hunger for your worship. But the problem is that they don't provide what they promise. Instead, they become enslaving. You never have enough. You have to keep going back and getting just a little bit more, but it's never, never enough. I don't know if you're familiar I'll close here with the writer Leslie Jameson. She's written a number of books. Last year, she published a pretty fascinating book called The Recovering. The Recovering. It was kind of an insider's look about addiction to alcohol and the way out, the recovery. In the book, she gives some insight about how it feels to be addicted And listen to her description and tell me this doesn't sound like the old self that you have to put to death, Jesus says. Here's what she says. Addiction is always a story that's already been been told because it repeats itself. The constant refrain of addiction is desire, use, repeat. Desire, use, repeat. That's why it's it's an old story. The story gets told over and over and over in your life. I have a desire to attach myself to something infinite. I use it. It's not enough. I repeat. What characterizes addiction, she says, is a narrowing of activity. So, So insightful. You falsely think your freedom is giving you everything in the world available to you. But when your freedom turns into addiction, it enslaves you to alcohol in her case. But it may be for you, anger, pornography, control, bitterness, pride, materialism. So now you spend your whole life just trying to get this one thing. Your whole life of freedom gets narrowed down to just one thing. And you try to get it over and over and over again. Isn't that chilling? 
It's exactly what Jesus is saying in verse 34 and 35. If you're trying to satisfy an infinite hunger in this world, then you will repeat an old, old story. Your life becomes increasingly narrow and leads to despair. One more line from Jameson. And she talks about the way out from her addiction. The way out is not just stopping your drinking. Listen. The way out is not just stopping your drinking, but you must, you must come out of the claustrophobic crawl space of the self. Wow. You must come out of the claustrophobic crawl space of yourself. You've got to crawl out of that. It's exactly what Jesus is saying here in this text. But he wants to add, which Jameson doesn't, She's somehow stumbled on the truth of Mark chapter 8. Coming to the very end of yourself is the first step on the way out. But the second step is attaching yourself to Jesus. It's not just coming out and saying, now I can do whatever I want. No, that's, that's going to cause another narrowing. You've got to attach yourself to Jesus because he says, you've got to lose it for my sake or for the gospel. He alone is infinite. And can, you can attach your soul to him and have your deepest longings met. So again, a question. Can you tell me which self feeds your soul? How do you just operate this week, last week? What feeds your soul? Your old self, the things of the world, or this new self that's attached to to Jesus. So this has been your crucial conversation. A conversation between you and Jesus, it should have a disproportionate influence on your soul and the stakes couldn't be higher. How you choose dramatically impacts your destiny. So let's review. You don't get to decide the way of salvation. You don't get to decide the truth. But you can respond to it. If you say you believe, is it weighted with the words of Jesus or is your statement of belief weightless? Are you trapped in the claustrophobic crawl space of yourself? Or have you crawled out of that and attached yourself to Jesus? After the service is over, I'll be up front. If that would be helpful for you to have somebody to pray with you, I'd be happy to do that. Another elder will join me. Let's close by praying and singing our final song. Lord, crucial conversation. This conversation had a disproportionate influence on Peter, the disciples, and this crowd. And I pray it would have a disproportionate influence on this crowd at Christ Community. Maybe it's the bucket of cold water we needed today. Pray for your Holy Spirit to do its work. In Jesus' name, amen.